Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I am Sue from the Salveson Mindroom Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm recording an episode of our psychological podcast, which is all about um, developmental psychology, understanding children's learning and development and cognition, um, and hopefully making a bit of a contribution because that seems to be something we're talking about a lot right now, which is great. And today I am talking to Charlotte Bagnall, who is an associate lecturer at the University of Exeter. And she's going to talk to me about a paper um, looking at experiences of school transition and how students, teachers and parents feel it can be improved. So, hello, Charlotte. How are you today? Um, I'm, good. I'm good. Thank you. Great. Um, so I'm really excited to hear about this paper because I think school transition is something we need to investigate a bit better as researchers. So um, why don't you start off by telling me um, what you and your colleagues discovered in this bit of research? Okay. Um, so um, I myself and um, two colleagues who I work with as part of my PhD, so Dr. Claire Fox at Manchester Metropolitan University and Dr. Yvonne Skipper at the University of Glasgow, published a paper in the British Journal of Educational Psychology to look at Year 7 parents, children, and Year 6 and 7 teachers' retrospective experiences of primary to secondary school transition and how they felt it could be improved using um, asynchronous and synchronous focus groups. So I think the main finding um, that was shown in this paper is that there is a need for greater communication across systems, so between primary schools and secondary schools, but also between stakeholders, so the school and the home, over school transition, so that children are met with a, um, an element of continuity and also consistency um, during this period of time. Another thing that was missed empirically, but sort of shown in this research, with the need for primary to secondary school transition provision to be managed gradually and sensitively. So there is a balance between exposure and to some of the challenges that transition poses to children, but also consistency. And this was discussed mostly by the year seven children. So in other words, they wanted a degree of insight into what secondary school would look like and how to sort of navigate these different challenges. But they also wanted this exposure to follow a clear continuum with a limit as children also need consistency during this time to, um, to sort of prevent them feeling overwhelmed. That is really interesting and important work. Thank you, Charlotte, so much. So um, why don't you just um, take me back a bit and tell me what motivated you to investigate this question in this, in this way? Okay, so one major limitation across primary to secondary school transition literature is that we try to understand transition without understanding what's happening to significant others in the child's ecosystem or the child's life. Mm -hmm. So we know that primary to secondary school transition is a challenging time for children and that children who have greater resilience and have greater support systems and cope better but what is not recognised is how primary to secondary school transition can also be a period of um, substantial change for support figures, such as parents mm. and teachers, who also have to adjust to new roles and expectations um, during this time. 
I wanted to investigate how these first time these stakeholders first time experiences of the process of primary to secondary school transition are sort of related as without sort of understanding how children, parents and teachers' views um of transition are um and efforts to improve them. Um it it's hard to know how we can make this transition period better for all stakeholders. Mm, that's so interesting. Um so tell me a bit more about about the the people who took part in the in the study. I guess I'm specifically curious about whether the parents you spoke to and the students you spoke to were related to each other or if they were separate groups of students and parents, right? Yeah. So I recruited the children, parents and teachers from schools in the West Midlands. So for the child um, focus groups, they took part um, in class. So they were um, synchronous focus groups took part took place in real time. Whereas the parents and the teachers um, focus groups, where possible, we tried to ensure that parents and teachers were recruited from the same schools. But this mm. was always possible, but also we wanted sort of a variety of responses. So mm. we recruited some parents and some teachers from different secondary schools um, and different mm. primary schools. And those focus groups took place um, online, so they were um, asynchronous focus groups. They didn't take place in real time. And this was mm. sort of recognising that parents and teachers have very busy lives and how to sort of um, obtain their insight during a time convenient to them so they could log in and out of the online focus groups at a time point that was mm. convenient with them. Mm. And this overcomes some of the limitations that have, have been shown using focus groups with, with these stakeholders. Mm. Mm. So how did you find using that um, asynchronous kind of online focus group method? That's something that we just did for the first time last year. I'm curious what you thought of it as a as a technique for collecting data. I thought it was it was very useful, particularly for the context in which I was doing it, because I wanted the focus groups to be sort of anonymous. Um, mm. I didn't want the parents and the teachers to know who was participating in the group, so they could they could mm. be more honest with the responses. Mm. And I think the online format um, aided an element of the focus groups being decontextualized, so they were non-confronting. And I think it encouraged stakeholders to share more honest insights. And mm. it also was to get sort of a wider variety of participants than we may have done if we would have done it face-to-face. Mm. The qualities, and, I suppose, of location and getting to the focus group at the same time. So I suppose it enabled us to have a sort of a, a wider variety of participants taking part. Mm. I think that's so important, actually, you know, because a lot of this research we do end up with, you know, tends to be kind of, middle class families who have got a bit more resource and a bit more flexibility to, to take part in this kind of thing. And I think you're completely right as well about the confrontational element. You know, it's always a worry if you're doing a face-to-face focus group that that it will be sort of dominated by people with strong opinions. And it's actually quite hard in that in that room, you know, when you're sitting with people to disagree with them. And so I'm always left wondering if, if there's more range of opinion than necessarily came across, you know. Um, yeah. So it's great that you can capture that by doing this online system. That's fab. And all of the parents and teachers also had pseudonyms as well. So I think that mm. helps as we encourage participants to not share any um, information that would reveal their identities. And they also could have their own pseudonym. So I think, again, mm. that um, afforded that um, level of an, um, I can't say anonymity. 
I sort of struggle with, but yeah, it's sort of um, an 80s world and to sort of be confidential and yeah, anonymous. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm going to ask you a bit about how you analysed it in a minute, but first, just for one clarification for people who might be listening from abroad, can you just tell us where year six and year seven is in relation to primary to secondary transition? So are these the first two years after moving into secondary school? And so year six is the last year in primary school, so right. 10, year old children, and year seven is the first year in secondary school, so 11 right. and 12-year-olds. Great. So you're looking at either side of that transition, people anticipating it, and then people looking back on having just done the transition. Yes. But this particular research was, was conducted using retrospective focus groups, so I used year seven children, um, year seven parents, and year right. six and seven teachers. Because I think it was, well, it was many factors really, but the main one was that we didn't really want to ask children questions about how they felt moving on when they were in year six before they made the move to um, mm. school. Because we didn't really want to plant any anxieties they may not have already had about secondary school by asking them questions they may not have anticipated. Mm. But also hadn't transitioned yet, so I suppose they hadn't had that exposure into the differences between primary mm. school and secondary school. So that was one of the reasons really why we um, use a, um, retrospective focus groups. Mm, that makes sense. Um, so tell me a bit about the analysis. How did you, you know, did you analyse the student and the teacher and parent data sets sort of separately or did you bring them all together? How did you go about that? Um, so that was actually one of the unique elements of the analysis. So. What we did was that we conducted an inductive thematic analysis initially on each group of transcripts, so the parent transcript, the children transcript, and then the year six and seven teacher transcripts. So we coded these separately. We looked at sort of semantic similarities and differences across these groups of transcripts. But then we brought them together to form overarching themes and sub-themes, and this sort of reflected discussions across the three focus groups but also identifiable distinctions between the groups. So some of the sub-themes were unique to one specific stakeholder. Some of them were relevant to two of them, some three. But um, we wanted to sort of ca capture that in the analysis, really. Mm -hmm. And so you talked at the beginning about some of the kind of key findings around, you know, better communication and consistency in managing the transition process. Were there any places where there was, a really strong contrast or or even, you know, kind of opposing opinions between groups in terms of what would be helpful? Um, oh, I suppose, I think there's more similarities really than um, differences. So what we sort of found was that children, parents and teachers' experience of school transition was actually shown to be quite similar. They all sort oh, of good. navigated an analogous process where they managed either their own or others. Um, emotions or the relationships, expectations, but subject to communication and disjunctions between the school and the home, but also fears of transferring worries, especially between the parents and the children, so they didn't want to let the other parties mm. who were anxious, mm. sort of had um, um, apprehensions about the transition. There wasn't really recognition of this, so communication across sort of um, the stakeholders but also the systems was quite limited. Mm. And I, I think that, oh, go on. Sorry. Well, well I was just going <laughs> to... <laughs> you go, Charlotte. 
What I was going to say is I, I think this has really limit, lim, um, implications when we're sort of thinking about our current climate because it mm. suggests the importance of having discussions really between year six children and teachers, um, year mm. six children and parents, which I suppose is more um, prevalent now with um, home education, um, to sort of help prepare year six children for their move ahead to secondary school. Mm. Mm. So, um, so what I was going to say is that, you know, I think it's really good news, actually, that you see such consistency between the groups because that suggests, you know, more kind of fertile ground for making changes. So I suppose if I could just draw you out a little bit further on the implications, you know, if someone, if a teacher or a parent or a, a pupil in their final year at primary school is listening to this, you know, what would be a sort of concrete action that you would recommend one of those people or all of those people might take to help them um, make the smoothest possible transition? So I think for the children, um, communication, so the importance of um, talking to other people about how you're feeling. So there were some findings shown in the research that um, children didn't really talk to the, um, to the peers or they didn't think the classmates felt the same way as them. So encouraging um, sort of children to talk to each other, talk to the parents, seek support from um, the school, the home. I think for parents, um, the need to again have that those discussions with the children about primary to secondary school transition, about moving on, maybe thinking about similarities between their transition to secondary school and the child. Mm. But recognizing sort of what I spoke about at the start of the um, podcast about the need for these discussions to be gradual and responsive mm. to children's needs because we don't want them to feel overwhelmed. We don't want them to also, though, feel underprepared. So these discussions need to be gradual, sensitive, and child-led as much as possible. Mm. And I suppose this is, again, even more important now when we are thinking about the current climate. So ensuring that we are nurturing children's confidence and the self mm. the feelings of control. And this will not only help children with sort of the uncertainty surrounded um, COVID-19 in the short term, but also feed forward in building that emotional resilience for um, at-risk time points, such as primary to secondary school transition. Um, yes, that's so interesting and important, isn't it, actually? Because I, I guess if I can, um, well, you tell me if I'm getting it wrong, but I suppose in a way the conversations then that parents and teachers and children are having around primary to secondary transition, you know, that then provides um, almost like a practice or an opportunity to hone those skills that might then also be applicable in other times of difficulty or stress, right? Um, yeah, like yeah. you said, you know, it's happening right now. So if we can get that right, then, you know, we can, we've got a good solid foundation for overcoming difficulties in the future. Yeah, definitely. Building sort of the resilience, the coping skills, being able to draw on um, support figures for um, social support it has so many implications, really, um, not just with regards to transition, but also other turning points in children's lives. Mm. Oh, that's so great, Charlotte. And actually, my eldest is going into secondary school in uh, in September, so this is perfect for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> So finally, as you know, we normally ask um, if you've got any advice for kind of early career researchers or postgrad students who are listening 
um, I believe you're in your um, first lectureship post-PhD. Congratulations, Charlotte. So um, I wondered if you had any kind of hot off the press advice for people who are, you know, following in your footsteps. Okay, um, I suppose looking back to sort of my own um, academic journey, I suppose, would be to sort of follow your research interests and find sort of an academic home um, and team who are willing to support this. So I've always really been interested in primary to secondary school transition. I suppose really from day one when I was an undergraduate and I sort of went to um, my primary supervisor who is Dr. Claire Fox with this idea um, on how to sort of measure social support over primary to secondary school transition. And I suppose I was quite lucky, really, to be able to look at it from a, a final year um, undergraduate student, but then follow this same stream of research into my master's and then my PhD, and being mm. able to have that um, supportive team who wanted to follow this path with me. Um, and so I suppose that was, would be my main advice in terms of sort of... Um, research but also sort of the importance of enjoying and celebrating all successes whether that's a big success um you know getting getting your first job post phd or it's a small or a smaller success um i think that that's really important particularly um, in our current climate and then the importance of sort of a work-life balance although i do feel a bit of a hypocrite in that at the moment so i suppose the additional <laughs> time at home has been more opportunity to sort of follow up on research projects in the evening but it is really important to make sure you have got that balance right mm, great advice charlotte i love this idea of finding your academic home that just sounds so nice and and sort of snuggly doesn't it it's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's just so important really to be able to have um sort of an academic home that shares the same interests as you mm. um as well as your sort of i suppose your, your lines of inquiry so yeah no, I think that's really important mm, thank you oh well that is great advice Charlotte and fascinating research on a really important topic so I'm delighted that we had the chance to talk about it today um, for anyone who is listening you will be able to find out more about Charlotte's work by following the links in the podcast description on Bosbrack or in your podcast app thank you so much Charlotte thank you thank you for um, this opportunity today not at all. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>